reading out of Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 12 today. If you have a Bible with you, go ahead and turn there with me. If you do not have one, there should be one underneath the seat around you. And if you don't own a copy of the scriptures in your home, please take that with you as a gift from us today. So if you are able, please go ahead and stand for the reading of God's word. Hear the word of the Lord. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. This is God's word. You may be seated. Hey, good morning, Providence. Welcome to church this morning. If I haven't had the opportunity to meet you, my name is Joseph, and I serve as one of the pastors here. Uh, If this is your first time to gather with us, we are truly grateful that you're here with us, and uh, I want to make it known that we aim to be the kind of church that is welcoming and hospitable to everyone, no matter where you're at in life. So again, thank you for being here, and uh, whether you would consider yourself a Christian, not sure you're a Christian, or 100% sure that you are not a Christian as you're here with us this morning, I want you to know that our hope Uh, as a team of pastors and staff here at Providence is the same for everyone in attendance. And is that we would all taste and see the glory and goodness of Jesus as we open up the scriptures and as we seek to learn from God's word. And so would you please pray with me to that end? And and I do want to make a note as we pray. I also want to pray for all of those that are experiencing uh, sadness, sorrow, and suffering in light of uh, Hurricane Florence over on the East Coast. So would you guys please pray with me to that end? Father, we come before your throne of grace and we humble ourselves in your sight and we recognize, God, right out of the gate that we need you this morning. Father, we need you to do what only you can do, which is by the power of your spirit, you can make your word clear and convicting and compelling and comforting to us. God, you can provide all that we need and far more than we deserve and you already have so richly done that for us in Christ. And so I pray that you would take what is in your word and you would make it alive and active in our lives, God, that you would see to it, Lord, that we not only hear your word this morning, but we are transformed by it and we become doers of your word as well. And we need the power of the Holy Spirit to do these things, God. We can't do it on our own. As it says in John 15, God, you are the vine, we are the branches. Apart from you, we can do nothing. So may we find ourselves abiding in your word this morning. And Father, we lift up um, all of those that are experiencing suffering and loss and devastation over in the Carolinas and on the East Coast as a result of Hurricane Florence. Those of us here in Houston know all too well just how devastating a storm like that can be as we were in that place this time last year. So Father, I pray that you would be with those that have experienced loss and are currently their world is upside down i pray that your peace and your presence would abound there and father i also pray that just like in houston god your people the church would rise to the occasion 
and would serve those in the days and weeks and months ahead, God, as they seek to piece their lives back together. I pray that this would truly be a time for the church over in the Carolinas, Lord God, to be the light of the world, to be the salt of the earth, God, to demonstrate and declare the wonders of the gospel in the midst of a dark and difficult time. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said amen. Okay, so on February 8th of 2016, my wife, Emily, and I walked into a hospital in Flower Mound, Texas, which is where we were living at the time, so that she could begin the process of being induced to bring our second, our second miracle child into the world, Jude. And I do emphasize our second because even though uh, Elijah was adopted, he is very much a miracle child in his own right. But Jude was a miracle child because we were told uh, and we were expected that we would never be able to give birth to children biologically. And so I have to be honest, though, as we in- walked into that hospital, uh, I was not prepared for what I was about to experience, okay? Uh, I, we went to the birthing classes. We did it all. Uh, I, I'm a researcher. I'm an avid researcher. I did all that I possibly could. I wanted to make sure that I was prepared as I possibly could be, but none of my preparations prepared me for what I was going to experience, okay? It was 32 hours of watching my wife endure pain like I've never seen. And it was really difficult to watch. Honestly, it was probably harder for me to witness it than it was for her to do it. I'm just kidding, ladies. <laughs> ladies are like, uh, how dare you? Don't even. I, I, I put that in there completely as a joke. I'm totally kidding. Please don't send me any angry emails. I'm totally kidding. But seriously, it was, it was difficult to watch. I know that it was far more difficult for her to endure it, but it was difficult to watch because, first of all, all you see in the labor process, especially whenever they induce you and you've got the Pitocin going into you and, and the false contractions and all of that kind of stuff, basically trying to bring about this child into the world, all you see in here is pain. It's just pain. Like my wife was in pain that I had never seen before. And all you're thinking about, at least if you're like me, is what could possibly go wrong, right? Every time a nurse would come in and, and say something or check something, I'm like, wait, 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 is that normal? You know, I, I know I read this, but can you reaffirm, reassure me? Is that normal? And it lasted for a long time. Like I said, 32 hours of labor. But as soon as it came time for her to start pushing, everything changed, right? I mean, the entire atmosphere of the room changed. It went from her having her birthing coach in the room, her doula in the room, to now all of a sudden like a squad of people file in. And I was like, what is happening here? It looked like the bomb squad came in. They all had like shields and masks and stuff like that, gloves. They were ready to go. They were all suiting up. Looked like they were in hazmat suits. Like everything just came really, really quickly because she started pushing and the doctor, her, her, her doctor came in, uh, the, her uh, OBGYN came in and, and just said, okay, we're close. And everything got simultaneously more serious, but it also got more expectant. Why? Because her pushing meant that we were close to witnessing new life coming into the world. All of her pain, all of the vulnerability that she had experienced was making way for Jude to come into the world. And when he was born, and when we saw him, although there was a scare at first whenever he first entered the world, when he was born and when we saw him, it was all worth it, right? The nine months, the 32 hours, the pushing, the pain, the vulnerability. I saw my wife in that moment, as weak as I had ever seen her in my entire life, but I also in that very same moment saw her as strong as I had ever seen her. How does that happen? 
It's because just like a mother giving birth, sometimes our most vulnerable and painful moments in life can bring about the most powerful and incredible gospel opportunities. And that's what Paul's getting at in this portion of his letter to the Philippians. See, he's in prison when he's writing this letter. It's one of Paul's four, they call them the prison epistles, four letters that he wrote while he was in prison to churches, to people that were outside of prison. He's in prison, and he is in an extremely vulnerable and weak position. But at the same time, He's in one of the most vulnerable and weak positions you could possibly be in, but at the same time, he is writing about experiencing great joy. Why and how can he do that? Be in such a state, but yet at the same time, be declaring his great joy. I'm glad that you asked because I think there are a few things that we're going to learn from Paul this morning and how we can experience joy in the gospel through this passage. So I've got a few points And I'll read them all out, but then we'll go through them one by one. How can we experience great joy in the gospel, even in the midst of difficult circumstances? Number one, by seeing suffering as an opportunity to advance the gospel. By seeing suffering as an opportunity to advance the gospel. Number two, by seeing opposition as an occasion to rejoice in the gospel advancing. And number three, by seeing gospel advancement as an objective that yields greater joy in life. And I'll explain all of these terms in greater detail. But number one, let's look at how we can experience great joy in the gospel by seeing suffering as an opportunity to advance it. In verses 12 through 13, Paul says that his imprisonment has served to advance the gospel throughout the whole imperial guard of the Roman Empire. At least, at least, maybe not the whole Roman Empire, at least the post and the station in which he was imprisoned. And many people debate about where Paul was actually imprisoned whenever he wrote this. Um, most people believe that he was actually in Rome at the time. Um, and so Paul says that his imprisonment, we'll read it, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. But Paul says, my imprisonment has served to make the gospel known to the whole imperial guard. And before we can go any further, I want us to consider a couple of things. Number one, the first thing that I want us to consider is that we have to ponder what imprisonment and incarceration really means. Especially in that time, right? Um, Prisoners in our day and age, especially in a country like ours, are treated far better than prisoners were treated in that day and age, okay? So imprisonment and incarceration in that time meant pain, okay? It meant regular beatings. You were basically at the mercy of any guard that was over you at the time. They could do anything and everything that they wanted to you, and they really didn't have to answer for it. They were mercenaries. So it meant pain. Imprisonment meant hunger. Imprisonment meant hunger. It meant scorn. It meant loneliness. It meant isolation. And here's something that we often don't think about. Being in prison in that time in particular meant invisibility. You are utterly invisible to the outside world when you're in prison, are you not? You basically don't exist in society except for those who, except for to those who know that you're in there and to those that you're also sharing your prison cell with. But outside of that, you are completely invisible to the world around you. And when you're in prison, and this is the context in which Paul is writing this letter from, you're experiencing sorrow and suffering in ways that most of us 
might categorize as our worst fears. Isolation, pain, hunger, scorn, all of these things Paul's experiencing. Yet at the same time, his letter is characterized by what we are saying is unwavering joy. Unwavering joy Paul is experiencing as he's in prison and in the midst of all of these difficult realities. So we have to ponder what imprisonment actually meant in that time. It meant significant suffering. Okay? I don't even think we can conjure up the intensity of what it meant to be a follower of Christ and be imprisoned in that time. But it meant significant suffering. The second thing that we have to realize is we have to, we have to quickly distinguish that Paul wasn't in prison just for pro- professing to be a Christian. Paul was in prison for preaching Christ. Okay, we oftentimes think that at that time everyone was getting thrown in jail just for being a professing Christian. You actually weren't being thrown in prison for being a professing Christian at that time. You would be thrown in prison for preaching Christ. It wasn't illegal to be a Christian in that time. It was illegal to preach Christ in that time. So Paul is in prison for preaching Jesus, which means he's already operating from a motivational structure that might be foreign to some of us in this room. He's operating from a place of motivation and desire that might be foreign to a lot of us in this room, actually, if we're honest with one another. And that is that anyone that is willing to defy Roman law, okay? Again, think about Rome. Think about Caesar. Think about how tyrannical they were. Think about how ruthless the Romans were. Think about how they punished those who who opposed the Roman authorities. They crucified them and left them out to dry like meat on the side of the road. They would behead people and hang their heads on sticks to, to make a point. So anyone that was willing to defy, to willingly and openly defy Roman law and intentionally put their life and liberty on the line to spread a religious message is going to see things a little bit differently than most Americans, right? Most Americans do not do things that put ourselves in harm's way. And we certainly do not do things that defy law, especially if that defiance is going to lead to us being imprisoned or incarcerated and experiencing the kind of suffering that Paul experienced. So when Paul rejoices in his suffering and seizes it as an opportunity for the gospel to advance, as opposed to complaining about his his imprisonment as some sort of oppression, we have to understand that the whole reason he's in prison in the first place, the whole reason he's even in jail, is because he wants more than anything to advance the gospel. So the whole reason Paul's in prison is because what he wants more than anything in his life is to see the gospel advance. He's in prison because he's preaching the gospel. And so, right there, we have our first lesson. We'll never see suffering or hardship in the way that God intends us to. We'll never see suffering and hardship as an opportunity for God to do something great in and through us if our lives aren't calibrated on the right mission. I'm going to say that again because I don't want that to get lost on you. You'll never see suffering and hardship as an opportunity for God to do great things in and through you if your life is not calibrated on the right mission. Unless we can come to grips with the fact that we were meant to live for a story much bigger than our own, we'll never be able to see our suffering and sorrow, or or we'll only ever be able to see our suffering and sorrow as a means of oppression, and we'll never see it as an opportunity for God to do something great in and through our lives. Unless we realize that our lives 
are meant to be lived in light of a bigger story than any time that suffering, sorrow, oppression, or anything like that comes knocking on our front door. We're only going to see it as a threat. We'll never see it as an opportunity. Think about it. Some of the most significant characters in history were those that experienced the greatest opposition or oppression, were they not? Some of the people that we might consider the most beautiful and prominent people that have ever walked the face of this earth outside of Christ, that have accomplished the greatest thing and achieved the greatest victories, men like William Tyndale, who thank you to him, we now have a Bible in our hands, men like Martin Luther, all of the reformers, men like Abraham Lincoln, men like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, men like Martin Luther King Jr., men like Nelson Mandela, women like Harriet Tubman, right? Women like Rosa Parks, all of these, all of these men and women throughout history that have done incredible things, Mother Teresa, that have done incredible things that we now look at and rever for the greatness of their lives, all did those things facing incredible opposition and incredible oppression. And we hold them up and we say, these are incredible people. These are beautiful people. They have done great and remarkable things for human flourishing. And history will actually tell us and reveal to us that the most impactful people with the most incredible stories are often those that have endured the most trial and turmoil. And a common thread that is woven throughout all of the stories of those people that I just listed off, and there are far more, is that they all labored for something that wouldn't allow them to see their suffering as a vain occurrence. They all labored for something bigger than themselves. They all worked and toiled and lived their lives on the line for something that would not allow them to see their own suffering and their own sorrows and their own being subject to oppression as a vain occurrence. They saw it as a means to an end. And that means to what end was the means that they wanted to see that mission, that cause advance. They had a cause that put their suffering in context. Now, everyone tracking with me. You guys are quiet this morning. It's okay. We're going to keep going. I'm just going to keep preaching. I'll get more riled up here in a minute, I'm sure. But unless we can see, brothers and sisters, and I mean truly see that our little lives are situated inside of a big, grand story and grand narrative, we'll never be able to see our suffering as a God-given opportunity. We'll only ever see it as an obstacle. We'll never see hardship, difficulty, trial, turmoil, any of those things. We'll never see those things in light of opportunities for God's glory to shine in and through us. We'll only see those things through the lens of a woe is me attitude. And we'll live our lives focusing on the things we believe God isn't doing in the world as opposed to seeing all of the things that he's already done. We'll live our lives complaining about the here and now as opposed to zooming out, looking back, and seeing the grand story of how God has been weaving throughout human history this great story of redemption. And when our highest priority and our greatest pursuit is living according to the false gospel of comfort and convenience, which is the false gospel that most of us in our context, in our community, live by, and it is the false gospel that most of us in our context, in our community, are sometimes naively, not nice, sorry, naively and ignorantly living according to, then anything that is uncomfortable or inconvenient can only be seen as a threat to our joy. If you live according to the false gospel that it is comfort and convenience at all cost, 
then anything that comes into your life that is uncomfortable or inconvenient cannot be for your joy. It can only be against your joy. But when our highest, highest priority and our greatest pursuit is the advancement of the gospel of Jesus, when our prayers are truly situated in the heart posture of, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, when our heart is truly calibrated with that prayer, then even the things that are difficult can be seen as an opportunity to increase our joy. Why? Why? Because we know that God can bring about good things through hard things. As a matter of fact, from Genesis to Revelation, is this not a story of God bringing about good things through hard things? Do you know that there is not a single ounce of scripture that was penned by a person that was not oppressed? All the Old Testament authors, all the New Testament authors were oppressed people. The 12 disciples of Jesus, the 11, Judas killed himself, were all martyred. Paul, who kind of stepped in in Judas's place, martyred. The greatest story that has ever been told, this book, more copies sold than any other book on the planet, was written by men who all died or martyrs' death or were oppressed people. What does that say about how God can turn hard things into good things. God can turn bad things into great things. God has a, a, a track record, if you will, of working in darkness and bringing about glorious and great opportunities. But when we can settle into the reality, brothers and sisters, that we are only alive today because God is telling his story of redemption through our lives, then and only then will we be able to see our suffering as a means to put God's grace and power in our lives on full display. Only when we can settle into the reality that we are alive today, you're alive today, I'm alive today, we're alive today, because God is telling his story of redemption through our lives. That's why we're here. That's why you have breath in your lungs. That's why you're in this room this morning. That's why even when you leave this room this morning, you're still gonna have breath in your lungs. It's because God has a story to tell, and that story is the good news of the gospel, and he wants to tell it through our lives, and he wants to use our weakness, our suffering, and our sorrow as a means to put his grace and glory on display. Note, this is the only <clears throat> explanation for what Paul goes on to say in verse 14. In verse 14, Paul says, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. What? It doesn't get more counterintuitive than what he just said. He just said his imprisonment actually emboldened other people to preach the gospel. In other words, when other brothers saw that I was thrown in prison for preaching, it made them want to preach even all the more. They saw full well that I was put here because I preached Christ. And what that did is that made them want to preach Christ just like I did. But they wanted to preach Christ even more boldly and courageously than before. How does that work? How does that work? About as, as I said, counterintuitive as it gets. 
but it only makes sense if your mission in life, listen to me, friends, if your mission in life is not just to be a Christian, but if your mission in life is to advance the message that made you a Christian. If your entire mission in life is just to be a Christian and a good Christian, but not to be a Christian that lives your life on the line to advance the message that made you a Christian, then this makes no sense to you at all. And most of the New Testament, I would say, is probably hard for you to discern how to apply it to your life because it was written by persecuted and oppressed men and women that were living their life on the line for the sake of the gospel being advanced. So whenever we're sitting here and we're just like thumbing through the Bible completely through the lenses of comfort, convenience, cost efficiency, and all of that kind of stuff, we're like, wait, where are the good verses? That's why I think, honestly, Philippians 4.13 is such a life verse for so many people. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Well, you can interpret that any way that you want if you just read that verse, right? If you just read that verse, that means that I can dunk a basketball even though I'm five foot 11 and don't have that kind of athletic ability because I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I can run a marathon because I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I can save $10,000 in six months because I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. If you know me, you know that's impossible for me to do. But so all of these things, you're just like, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. But you know what Paul's actually saying in the context of that passage? He's saying, I can, do suffer, I can endure suffering, I can endure sorrow, I can endure hardship, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. But the strength that Christ is calling for is not a strength just to be a good Christian, it's a strength to make the gospel unignorable. Much of what we'll read in the New Testament will be completely foreign to us and radically counterintuitive unless we see that our mission in life should be folded up underneath the mission of God. The second point that we can learn from Paul is we not only have to be able to see suffering as an opportunity to advance the gospel, we have to be able to see opposition as an occasion to rejoice in the gospel advancing. Let me, show you, let me tell you what I mean by that. In verses 15 through 17, we'll read them. Paul makes a confounding claim, Okay. Here we go. Paul says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, rivalry, sorry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Okay, what's going on here? And Paul gives us insight into two different groups of people that are preaching the gospel in that time. He says, there are those who preach Christ with envy and rivalry in their heart, and they have something against Paul. They, have, they clearly have something against him. In other words, Paul had some haters, okay? He had some haters in his ministry. Uh, he had some people that, that, that were not for him. They were against him. We don't know who or why. There's some speculation. It might be those that he was referring to in, in the Corinthians, the super apostles that were kind of false apostles that constantly mocked him because of his poverty and mocked him because of his suffering and all of those things. But nonetheless, Paul says there are those out there who preach Christ from impure motives. We don't know who or we don't know why fully. And then Paul says there are also those who preach Christ from goodwill with the motivation of love. But what's astounding is what Paul says in verse 18. In verse 18, he goes on to say, I'm good for it, either way. Whether you want to preach Christ from a pure motive or an impure motive, whether you want to preach Christ to afflict me or not to afflict me, whether you want to preach Christ from a posture of love or envy or rivalry or whatever, however you want to preach Christ, I'm good for it. 
I'm totally good for it. Why, though? Why isn't he more concerned with the motives of his, of, of his haters, of those that are, that are opposing him? Because, again, Paul cares more about the proclamation of the gospel, more than he cares about his own ego. And he cares more about the proclamation of the gospel than he cares even about his own ministry effectiveness. He's not in it for himself, and he refuses to allow his attention to be focused on being a victim in the matter. He won't allow himself to see himself as a victim in this situation. Now, clearly, Paul is just being obedient to what Jesus commanded him to do. Jesus commanded Paul, hey, I want you to go preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul says, okay, I'll go preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And as Paul is preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, guess what happens? Beatings, hardships, persecutions, insults, calamities, imprisonment, right? We read about the resume in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, right? Paul experiences all of this hardship, all just for being obedient. But in all of those things, Paul never stops and says, woe is me, I'm such a victim here. God, what are you doing in my life? Why am I experiencing all of these things? Why? It's because he knew full well, now listen to me, friends, he knew full well before he ever even became an apostle that he was gonna have to suffer for Jesus' sake. As a matter of fact, when Paul had hands laid on him after he was blinded by Christ in the glory of sight, of sight of encountering Christ on the road to Damascus, after Paul saw Jesus and was blinded, and then he has a man lay hands on him so that way his sight would come off, he's actually told, tell Paul all the things that he'll have to suffer for my sake. So as Paul is receiving his sight again, he's also hearing at the same time, I'm going to give you sight and I'm going to give you a mission, but that sight and that mission is going to come with suffering. So why is Paul not surprised whenever he's imprisoned? Why is his joy not wavered? Why does he seem to be this man that is walking in unwavering joy? It's because he knew what came with the territory. And he knew that taking on, taking on the name of Christ also meant taking up the mission of Christ. Taking on the name of Christ meant taking up the cross of Christ. See, you're not, we're in a culture now where we want to take on the name, but we don't want to take up the cross. Y'all are quiet. Y'all are real quiet this morning. I feel really alone up here. That's okay. I'm going to keep going. We live in a culture. We want to take up the name. We don't want to take up the cross. We want to enjoy the benefits of salvation. We don't want to be ambassadors of it. We want to revel in the glories and the mercies of Christ towards us. We don't want to lay our lives on the lines to see to it that the glories and mercies of Christ go out to others. But Paul knew full well, if I, if I do this, this is what's coming my way. He says, I'm good for it. Because he's not in, for, in it for himself. Paul says, as long as the motivation of the messenger doesn't interfere with the substance of the message which is Christ and him crucified, then the message remains clear, then I can rejoice in that. As long as these guys aren't diluting the gospel, as long as these guys aren't preaching a false gospel, they could be preaching to afflict me, I don't care. As long as Christ is being proclaimed, that's all I really care about, and in that I rejoice. There's a staggering level of humility demonstrated by Paul. But I wanna pull this down to our level even more. 
we may never be in prison for preaching the gospel. That may not happen in our generation, in this culture, in this country. And we may not have people that despise and oppose gospel ministry in our lives. But listen, friends, I think we need to think soberly about this for a minute. And I realized um, Court and I, whenever we were working on the sermon series together, uh, he entrusted me with picking the, the, the passages and the dates. And then I went back through the sermon calendar and looked at all the passages and dates that I was preaching. And then I realized, I'm like, great, once again, I, I have assigned myself all of the difficult passages and I've given Court all the fun ones. Um, but that's okay, that only further plays into our personality differences. Court's good cop on bad cop. But, <laughs> see, <laughs> but I think, <laughs> I, think, I think we need to think soberly about this for a minute. If we aren't experiencing opposition, are we truly on the mission of Jesus? If there's nothing in your life that is hard, not just for the sake of being hard, but for the sake of the gospel going forward, are we truly on the mission of Jesus? Are we really living for gospel advancement with the fervor that the Bible prescribes and describes if we aren't seeing opposition to the gospel? You think, I've never seen any opposition. I've never experienced spiritual warfare. I've never experienced some of the things that men and women talk about. I've never seen or experienced any of those kinds of things. I want to say humbly to you, but at the same time, I want to stand confidently on the word of God. I want to say that could be because the very life that we are living is so lukewarm, so watered down, that we're not a threat to the enemy in the kingdom of darkness at all. Jesus says that the church that he's going to build, the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against it. Now, I've always, I always make this point. When Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail against the kingdom of God, gates are not offensive weapons, right? Gates are defensive weapons. So what Jesus is essentially saying, the church that I'm going to build is going to be penetrating darkness. And the gates and the barriers that the enemy has set up to try and keep darkness where darkness is will not prevail against the light of the gospel. We are called to be advancers of the gospel, brothers and sisters. Paul is actually obsessed with this word, this word what, that, he, that he uses in verse 12, whenever he says, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. It's the same Greek word for the word progress. And you'll see throughout Paul's writings that term advancement and progress over and over and over again. He talks often about the gospel advancing in the world, and then he also talks often about the gospel progressing in our own lives. See, Paul wants to see two types of growth and advancement happening all the time. He wants to see con Christians continually grow up and progress in their faith. And as we continue to grow up and progress in our faith, he wants to see us continually go out and advance the gospel. These two things should be happening simultaneously. As we grow in Christ, the mission of Christ should abound in and among us. And when one is happening and not the other, then that means that the other is not taking its full effect. And if we are experiencing opposition, 
and some of us I know in this room are experiencing opposition for the sake of the gospel, do we have the perspective and humility to see it as a, an occasion to rejoice? In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 through 14, I'll read this. This is written by Peter, another apostle of Christ. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Why? If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now, according to Peter, a man who walked intimately with Jesus, opposition of any sort can be an occasion to rejoice, but specifically opposition that comes at the result of insult, being insulted for the name of Jesus. That kind of opposition should be a testimony to us, and it should be a confirmation to us. Why? He says that when you are insulted, that is confirmation that the spirit of the glory of God rests upon you. Opposition is a testimony, brothers and sisters, of our faithfulness to, to the gospel cause. It's a testimony that we are being faithful. So let me put it this way. Like many other things that are counterintuitive about the way of Jesus, we know that we are crushing it, language that we often use, when we feel like we're being crushed. How do you know that you're winning? When you feel like you're losing. And that's the way it is sometimes in the kingdom of God, right? Sometimes those that you think are just crushing it in life. They've got the right job, they've got the right this, they've got that, and it looks like they've got everything going for them. Their whole life is put together. Those sometimes can be the most miserable people on the planet. But then you can take a man that is imprisoned that is isolated and invisible to the world, you could say this man has nothing going for him, but from his perspective and an eternal reality, he has everything going for him because even though Paul is being crushed, he is crushing it for the kingdom of God. And sometimes the people who feel like they are winning are actually losing, and sometimes the people who feel like they are losing are actually winning. And brothers and sisters, I actually want that to be an encouragement to you because I know that as you seek to lay your life on the line to make the gospel of Jesus unignorable in this city, in this community, in your workplace, among your neighborhood, in your family, as you seek to do that, you're going to experience opposition. And there are going to be times when you feel frustrated. There are going to be times when you feel discouraged. There are going to be times whenever you're filled with doubt. There are going to be all of those times. But I want you to be reminded in that moment of what Paul said, of what Peter said in First. Peter chapter 4, that you can actually rejoice in your hardships and sufferings because in that moment, you're actually experiencing a testimony of the faithfulness, your faithfulness to the gospel going out. The third and final point, and I'll close this out with this. If, how can we see or stand with Paul to experience such joy in the gospel. It's by seeing gospel advancement as an objective that yields greater joy in life. We have to see gospel advancement as an objective or a mission that actually yields greater joy in life. If the content of Paul's letter does seem utterly foreign to us up until this point, there's a couple reasons for that. First and foremost, as I said earlier, it's hard for us to compare apples to apples 
when we don't live in a place or time that is as, in, as intense as the context Paul was writing from and into. We don't live in that context where Christians are experiencing that kind of persecution. Now, it's happening today around the world. It's just not happening in our neighborhood, in our city right now. But second, it's hard for us to comprehend rejoicing in the gospel advancing to this degree because the time and place we live has conditioned us to rejoice in our own advancement over that of anyone or anything else. The only time we're really feeling like we're being effective in life is whenever what we desire to do is actually being accomplished. So listen, what if what you desire to do and your greatest desire was to see the gospel advance? As opposed to your career, as opposed to your children's academic or athletic abilities. I gotta throw that in there. I know we're in the suburbs, okay? We all like to live vicariously through our little ones, right? What if the bigger mission, the bigger purpose of your life was not theoretically, but it was actually to advance the gospel? What if, what if what you really lived your life and laid your life on the line for every single day when you woke up in the morning and when you went to work and when you walked through your neighborhood and whenever you engaged with your family and when you engaged with your neighbors and when you did all of the things that you do, whenever you go hunting or fishing or playing recreational sports or whatever it is that you might be doing with your life, what if the greatest thing that you actually lived for was gospel advancement? What if that was the primary objective in your life? If that, brothers and sisters, was the primary objective in our life, then I'm confident that we would have greater joy. Why? Because what's driving Paul's entire letter is encouragement, and he wants to encourage the Philippians to experience greater joy in Christ. See, Paul is saying, I'm for your joy, I'm not against your joy. I want greater joy for you in Christ, not lesser joy for you in Christ. So when you hear me calling you to live the life of suffering, I want you to also hear me, although that sounds difficult, it's counterintuitive in the kingdom of God that suffering can actually yield joy. Hardship and difficulty can actually bring about great and good gospel opportunities, and those gospel opportunities can yield greater joy in our life than anything else. A gospel opportunity coming to fruition is better than a bonus. It's better than a raise. It's better than seeing your 401k increase. It's better than those things. Why? Because gospel opportunities that yield gospel fruit last for all eternity. Your bonus, your bank account, your 401k, all of that stuff can't go with you to the grave. But gospel opportunities that yield gospel fruit are something you will celebrate for eternity, for infinity. So for the business savvy in here, which are you going to invest in? Where your ROI has a temporary investment or your ROI has an eternal investment? So when Paul is calling for greater joy, he's not doing it in vain. He's saying, brothers and sisters, do you not realize that I'm calling you to something that is going to give you lasting joy, eternal joy, significant joy, greater joy. Mission for Jesus brings greater joy than mission for self, hands down. The problem is our culture has conditioned us to live only for mission of self. We spend our time, our energy, our talent on YouTube, on blogs, on videos, on Netflix, on this, on that, on spending sprees, on spending sprees, on Target, on Walmart, on the mall, or whatever it is. That's how we live our entire lives, day after day after day after day. 
That's the rat race that we're caught up in, and we don't even realize how much we're being formed by the culture that we're in. But yet here, the book of Philippians stands right in the middle. It's kind of a, a, a turning point for, you, for us, if you will, a fork in the road, and it's saying, what are you going to choose? Are you going to choose to live your life for gospel advancement and see greater joy and experience greater joy, or are you going to live your life for the advancement of your own agenda? How can we make gospel advancement the primary objective of our life? And we're not going to be able to do it, brothers and sisters, until we truly see and believe in a Savior that made our redemption the primary story and aim of his life. You say, it's hard for me to make gospel advancement the primary objective of our life. Well, brothers and sisters, you need to see that our redemption was the primary objective of the life of Christ. And how can we experience this kind of joy, the kind of joy that sees suffering as an opportunity and opposition as an occasion? We can only experience this kind of joy when gospel advancement has, is seen as a keystone or a source of our joy. To bring this full circle, we can see that all of the pain and vulnerability in putting our life on the line for the sake of Christ can and does bring new life into the world. Just like a mother in the delivery room only when we are willing to subject ourselves to pain and vulnerability will we experience the joy of people meeting Christ. What was happening in that delivery room whenever Jude was coming into the world was new life. New life was being born. And as I said, I've never seen my wife more weak, more vulnerable, but at the same time, I've never seen her more strong and more beautiful than she was in that moment. Why? Because her life was literally on the line to bring our son into the world. There are millions, yes, even billions of lives on the line. And we can either partake in the joy of seeing new life brought into this world, new life in Christ, that is. Or we can live our lives in pursuit of more temporary forms of joy. But I want to make it abundantly clear. The call here is a call to joy in the gospel. It's a call to joy in the gospel. It's a call to rejoice in what God has done for us, in Christ, what he has provided so richly for us. He's given us, as I say all the time, far more than we deserve, all that we need. It is a call to rejoice and celebrate the goodness of God by seeing to it that other people get to rejoice with you in the goodness of God. Now, what does this look like in our daily life? It can look like a number of things. But I think the first step, and this is a serious step, is repentance. Repentance and faith. Listen, we're going to come forward and we're going to receive communion here in a moment. But I don't want us to come forward and receive communion without taking a moment, a moment to repent and actually ask God to help us recalibrate our hearts and our lives and the mission of our lives. Like, I believe God can do that, Amen. Like, I believe here, now, through repentance and faith, 
we can walk out here with a radically different vision for our lives than we came in here. And we can walk out here with a radically different focus, a sharper, more narrowed focus on what God is calling us to do in our daily lives. I believe that we can walk out of here with that because I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit to transform lives through the word of God on the spot. And so please, if you're here and you're, and you're feeling the conviction of the Spirit in your life right now and you're like, yes, I want that. I want to live that kind of life. I have no idea what that looks like. I don't know how I'm gonna get there. It's scary to even think about it, but if you're like, I wanna live that kind of life. I wanna live with that kind of reckless abandon for the mission of Jesus going forward in the world. I want that for my life. Then please, brothers and sisters, don't walk out of those back doors without repenting and putting your faith in Jesus and saying, God, help me to do it. Because he can and he will, brothers and sisters. He will light a fire in you. Don't settle for church as normal if you know that what you need right now is not church as normal. Come to this table with a heart that is filled with repentance and faith in Jesus and vision for your future. And walk out of here and talk with your brothers and sisters. Talk with the the pastors of this church. Talk with the home group leaders and say, this is what God did in my life on Sunday and I want to start living this way. Can you help me? And I believe God will. If you guys could please stand to your feet. Communion is a wonderful and glorious reminder and occasion to rejoice in the good news of the gospel because it is a tangible reminder that Christ has offered his life and did offer his life as a ransom for our lives. As I said, we can live to make the mission of Jesus primary in our lives because we understand that the mission that Jesus had in his life was our redemption. And communion is a reminder of that. The, the, the bread on the table and the juice on the table represents the, the body of Christ and the blood of Christ that has offered up for us and poured out for us. And so this is a reminder for us to come and receive and remember the goodness and the grace of Jesus towards us in Christ. And so if you're a Christian in the room in a moment, I'm gonna call you forward. I'm gonna make it known that we have a gluten-free option bread here down here at the center table. So if you need gluten-free, you can come and receive that. But you'll take the bread and then you'll tear, tear off a little piece and then dip it in the cup. But please, as I said, if you're a Christian in here, take some time to repent, take some time to recalibrate, take some time to get your heart right with the Lord, if you will. And if you're not a Christian here, I would encourage you to use this time uh, not to come forward and receive communion, but rather to sit in the chair and, or, or just stand where you're at and use this time as a moment to reflect. And if you're at this place where it's like, man, I really kind of I want to exercise faith in Christ, I want to put my faith in Jesus, then I want to let you know that we'll have a prayer of belief on the screens, and you can just pray that prayer to yourself. But if you do, I would encourage you to, to, to come and meet with, uh, we'll have prayer volunteers on each side of the sanctuary. You can go and meet with one of them and let, you, let them know um, that you've decided to put your faith and trust in Christ today, and they'll walk with you through some next steps. And also, if just if you're a Christian in the room and you want to receive prayer this morning because this has stirred something in you, the Word of God has stirred something in you, I also encourage you to go and receive prayer this morning. The Bible encourages us to lay, encourages us to lay hands on one another and pray for one another. So please, if you need prayer, don't miss this opportunity. We're here to do such things. Let me pray and then I'll call you forward. Father, thank you so much for the good and glorious news that Christ has offered his life as a ransom to save us from our sins, to sanctify us, God, to make us holy and pure and righteous. And God, one day to glorify us 
Father, thank you for the wonderful news of the gospel, Lord God, that although we did nothing to deserve your grace, Father, you have so richly and freely lavished it upon us in Christ Jesus. You have given us the power of the Holy Spirit to indwell us and to live inside of us. Your very presence, your very being, your very essence now dwells inside of each and every person in this room that calls themselves a Christian. And God, we thank you for that wonderful and glorious truth that we get to celebrate and marvel every single day. And we get to celebrate and marvel at it all the more as we prepare to come down to the communion table. Father, thank you. But God, as we prepare to come forward, I pray that we would truly be confronted by what's in your word. Now that we would break out of the habit and the routine of just being hearers and listeners, but not doers. God, I pray that we would break out of the habit and the routine of sitting in the, sitting in the chairs with a passive mind and a critical spirit, Lord God, but we would, we would truly engage with what is being said in your word and what is being put on offer here for, this, for us this morning, Lord God, which is greater joy in Christ. Help us to repent, Lord God, where we have settled and where we have succumbed to the cultural pressures and influences to live for ourselves and ourselves only. And to see you as a supporting cast member in our story, as opposed to seeing ourselves as supporting cast members in your story, God. Help us to repent, Lord God, where we have taken your agenda and your mission and we've put it on the back burner in our lives and we've put our agenda and our mission on the front burner. Help us repent and to reorient that, God and to walk out of this place renewed and restored and rejoicing in the truth, God, that you have a story for us to live in and you have a story for us to tell and it is good news, Father. Help us to receive this communion, Lord God, with glad and generous hearts and we pray this in Jesus' name. Everyone said amen. You guys can come forward. Thank you.